Eddie takes the match ball home. Tomiyasu nets his first for the club. Vieira converts from the spot ahead of becoming a father. And a heartfelt thank you from me to you, dear listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Chronicles of Aguna. Let's fucking go, guys. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast right here on YouTube. Uh, big hello to everybody that is listening as well. Um, those of you that join us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the rest of it. Uh, love you all just as much. Thank you for tuning in as always. And we've got a nice, emphatic, comfortable victory to discuss today, which is always good fun. It's felt like over the course of this season so far that we haven't been at our best, that we haven't been able to sort of blow teams away in the way that we did so often last season. And, you know, I'm going to caveat everything I'm going to say today with the fact that we played Sheffield United, who are really poor and who I expect to get relegated and all the rest of it. But it was nice to see Arsenal, having found the opener, go on in that second half and blow them away. They are Premier League opposition at the end of the day. And so, you know, a 5-0 win should never be sniffed at, right? You should... Uh, embrace it. You should enjoy it. You should take the positives from it. And we're also going to talk about how well Mikel Arteta did, I think, in terms of rotating the squad. Now, obviously, when you rotate the squad and you get the result, people will say, masterstroke, genius. When you rotate the squad and your team doesn't perform and you don't get the results that you need, then people say, what were you doing? You're a tinker man, all the rest of it. We've heard it all before. But I think given the schedule that Arsenal faced this season, given the fact that we've made a conscious effort in recent times, to build out the squad, to get it to a point where we have players that Mikel can call upon, whom he trusts really, really well, um, or trusts loads, I should say, I think is was building towards this, building towards this idea of being able to change three or four players in a Premier League game and still feel comfortable in what you're putting out there, that they have enough to go on and get the job done and win you the match. And that was what we saw yesterday. There were a whole host of changes, which we'll come on to in a minute. Of course, Gabriel Jesus is out injured with that hamstring problem. We don't know exactly how long he's going to be out for. We think it's going to be a few weeks. In comes Eddie Nketiah. Boom, hat trick. Thomas Partey, we're without him. Jorginho's come into the side, been trusted and done quite well of late as well. So what you see now at Arsenal is a squad rather than just a team. And... Yesterday was a prime example of how even when we make changes, we are still more than good enough to dispatch of Premier League opposition. And the more displays we see like that, the more Mikel Arteta sees that, the more I think, you know, confident he'll be in making some of those changes that could maybe prevent the type of burnout that I think we've seen Bukayo Saka suffer from and, and various others within the squad. You know, you can protect Thomas Partey that little bit more, given his sketchy injury record, knowing that you've got a Jorginho there, knowing that you've got the option of putting Smith Rowe in midfield, Havertz in midfield, having Rice at the base, you've got the option of putting Jorginho at the base and pushing Rice that little bit further forward. Zinchenko could even play in midfield if you really wanted him to. Jurian Timber, when he comes back, can play a whole host of positions. So this is what we're building towards. And it was great to see it in action yesterday. Uh, and to see it work uh, so wonderfully. Let me say a few hellos. Uh, lots of you joining us in the live chat already. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, please do leave us a like. Um, please do subscribe to the channel if you're new as well. It really, really does help. If you're listening on audio, 
please, please do leave us a review. That really, really helps, especially on Apple Podcasts. I'd love us to get to 150-odd reviews on Apple Podcasts. I think we're on about 110 at the moment, which when you think about how many people tune into this on a weekly basis, on a daily basis even, is nowhere near enough. So please, if you could help us out with that, I'd be very, very grateful. Let me say a few hellos, and then we'll dive into the content of the show. Uh, we've got Tom in the chat. Uh, Jon Tora is with us. Brian joins us from Brooklyn. Uh, we've got Delisu here. Matt joins us from Burma. Uh, we've got Mario, John, Pavel, uh, Creambone, Julian, uh, Junior Gunner. Uh, who else we got? Sia is with us. Uh, Mr. T is with us. Uh, Eastside London is with us. Thank you all so much. Henry, Steve, uh, Jid, so many of you in the chat. Apologies if I've missed anyone, um, but it is updating constantly in front of me. Anyway, um, the first thing I want to do is say a massive, massive thank you to you guys, the dear listeners slash viewers of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast, because what we've seen over the last uh, couple of days is the channel here on YouTube hit 30,000 subscribers. Those of you that are regular listeners will know that I've been desperate to get there for a period of time. And finally, just the other day, we got over the line. So a massive, massive thank you to you guys for your support. It really, really does mean the world to me. And I am so, so fortunate to have a career in broadcasting now. And that is a result of what we've built on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Because without this podcast, I don't get any chances. Without this podcast, I don't have a portfolio of work to be able to show. Without this podcast, I don't have any value. So to have built this podcast to this point, which I know to some is insignificant, right? You'll, you'll get YouTubers out there that have got hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And that's great. You know, they they deserve that. And I've got no issue with that. But for me, it's always been about, first and foremost, creating hopefully good quality content, content that isn't me ranting all the time, that isn't designed to wind people up and isn't designed to be clickbait. Yeah, we all play the game a little bit with the thumbnails and with the titles and all that, because ultimately your podcast is nothing, right? If it's not searchable. So, you know, yes, we, we do a little bit of that here. But I like to think that once the content starts, it's sensible and it's well thought out. That's what I try and do. And so I know that the growth isn't going to be as big with something like that, or it's going to be a bit more of a slow burner. But I know that we've got such an engaged and committed audience here that I wouldn't swap this for the world. So I'm so, so thankful to every single one of you. And a big thanks to everybody that listens on audio regularly as well, because we hit big, big numbers on there as well. And I know that it's not... Um, always the same people. I know that there is a bit of a crossover. There'll be uh, listeners that are subscribed on audio, but also subscribed uh, on the podcast as well. Uh, sorry, on the YouTube channel as well, which is great. But I know that we've got a whole other audience as well of people that only listen on audio. So I'm so, so um, thankful to every single one of you, every one of you that watches, that comments, that likes, that subscribes, even if you don't do those things and you just watch quietly in the background. I'm so thankful uh, to you guys as well. So a big thanks. Uh, 30,000 subscribers here on YouTube. Let's start working towards the next target now because you you build it up in your mind, right? You're like, come on, let's get to 30,000. Then you go, okay, where are we going next? Where are we going next? And, and and that's where I'm at right now. So let's um let's keep building. Let's keep pushing. And a big thank you again 
uh, to every single one of you. Another quick thing I just wanted to touch on as well, not football related. Um, woke up this morning to the sad news that Matthew Perry, actor, um, you know, most famous for his role in Friends as, as Chandler Bing, um, has sadly passed away this morning. That is horrible news. Um, so I just want to say rest in peace um, to, to Matthew Perry. I think one of the most talented actors of our time. Um, you know, I know people will argue, oh, he didn't do enough movies and he didn't do this and he didn't do that. But for me, the character that he played in Friends was incredible. Um, and, you know, so many of us know so many of his lines and that's down to the writers as well. But Matthew Perry, I thought, played that part and that role brilliantly. So um, really, really sad news to wake up to. And I'm sure, like me, many of you guys uh, grew up watching Friends. So, uh, of course, this kind of news, it hits hard, doesn't it? It really, really does. OK, um, let's dive into uh, the game. Arsenal 5, Sheffield United nil. We're going to start off by discussing that rotation that I discussed right at the top of the programme. Uh, we'll get into that. We'll talk about how it worked and we'll break down some individual performances as well as looking at how the pattern of the game went. Don't go anywhere. Right. So Mikel Arteta made a number of changes uh, to his side uh, going into this one against Sheffield United, who I mentioned went into the weekend bottom of the league, still without a Premier League victory this season. And, um, you know, I'd said to you guys in the build up that, you know, it is against the side that, that sit at the bottom of the table. It is against the side that we are expected to beat. But it's never that easy, really, is it, um, when it comes to the Premier League? It's a league that can spring surprises. It's a league that constantly springs surprises. That's why in many people's eyes and in many people's books, it's, it's the best league in world football. Um, I, I think that the standard of officiating does hold it back um, a lot, which we've discussed in the past as well. But I haven't really got too many complaints about them yesterday. Uh, I'm going to complain. No, in fact, I'm not going to complain about anything. I'm going to talk about uh, how the game went, because I think some of what we were saying in the build up with regards to how difficult it could be at the start and some of the challenges we were going to face, I think were, were evident and were on display in that first you know, 28 minutes or so. What I will say is maybe I should stay away from Emirates Stadium more often because I wasn't at the game yesterday. Um, I was at Stamford Bridge uh, to work on the Chelsea-Brentford game. And um, I actually finished a little bit earlier than I expected because I didn't have to do some of the post-match stuff in the end um, that I would normally do when I'm commentating on a game. So I looked at the clock and I thought, I can either sit around and try and figure out how to watch this game on a dodgy stream with a questionable internet connection, or I can sacrifice the first 25 minutes of the game and just head home and watch the rest of it on TV from the comfort of my couch. So that's what I did. I decided that I'd be better off watching 70 minutes of the game rather than um, sort of trying to watch it on my phone and all the rest of it. And you know that when you're trying to search for a stream, more often than not, they're poor quality. They jump, there's adverts in the middle of them, all the rest of it. So that's what I did. I, I jumped on the train and I got home, I think on about 24 minutes and I sat down and watched it. Now I'd been listening to the first 20, 24 minutes on the radio and it sounded like we weren't playing very well. And I've since watched the first 25 minutes back in full and I have to agree with my initial thought and feeling, which was it was all just a little bit too slow. It was all just a little bit 
too lackluster. There wasn't that zip and tempo in the performance that you want to see. And therefore, we struggled to pull apart a very well set up Sheffield United team. You've got to remember, this is a Sheffield United team that almost held uh, Tottenham to a draw, almost got all three points against Tottenham, um, who everybody seems to think are the best thing since sliced bread at the moment. Not that long ago, a couple of really, really late goals turned the game on its head for Ange Postacoglu's side. And they almost took a point off of Manchester United. Um, just a little while ago as well. And of course, that late Diogo Dallo goal broke their heart. So although Sheffield United's performances in terms of their outputs and results and all the rest of it are very, very poor, they've got just one point on the board so far this season. They still haven't won a game. There is evidence to suggest that they are capable of going away from home and doing it at Bramall Lane, but they are capable of making life difficult for opposition. They are capable of defending in a rigid shape and making it tough to break them down. And so in terms of the first 25, 28 minutes, 28 minutes was when we broke the deadlock. I wasn't massively surprised by it. And I have to say, though, when you when you watch that kind of lackluster performance, because you've got to remember, this is an Arsenal team that traditionally over the last year or so had started games really well and really, really fast. And now we don't. You know, we don't seem to be able to score goals in the first 15 minutes of games like we did last season and at times the season before. Now, you could argue that at times we'd run out of steam later on in games. And so there's been a conscious effort to maybe pace ourselves over the course of a 90 minute football match. Maybe that is a thing. But, you know, when you think about the fact that we've not been able to do that lately and the way that Sheffield United set up and, and the fact that we'd made a number of changes, which at times can upset and disrupt the rhythm a little bit. I wasn't overly surprised by the fact that we'd struggled to break them down in those early stages. If we talk about the team selection, David Raya, of course, continued in goal. Uh, ben White, Saliba, Kivior and Zinchenko were the back four. But it was pretty much a back three, wasn't it? With Zinchenko sort of playing in far more advanced areas. Um, the midfield was Rice, Havertz and Smith-Rowe uh, with Saka, Nketiah and Martinelli up front. So the big, I guess, highlights from that, Martin Odegaard left out. Now, his form has dipped in the last couple of weeks. We put an episode out the other day. Uh, the reason behind um, Martin Odegaard's drop in form or, or Martin Odegaard's drop in form explained whatever it was titled anyway. Um, and, and I talked about a number of things there. I do think that the way we're playing at the moment in terms of who's playing in the sixth position and the fact that we're not progressing the ball as well as a team early enough is having an impact on Martin Odegaard's game. I think that Bukayo Saka's drop in form and the injury problems he's had have impacted on Martin Odegaard's game. So I do think there are a number of reasons on the pitch that maybe we're not seeing the best out of Martin Odegaard at this moment in time. But Mikel Arteta came out in the build-up to this game and said that he'd been carrying a little bit of a knock, a little bit of an injury, which I think possibly was Mikel Arteta defending his player, you know, sort of leaping to his defence as if to say, hold on, you're getting onto a player that's been very, very good for me. I'm not going to sit here and, and fuel that narrative. Instead, I'm going to try and pour cold water on it. Now, I don't know that for a fact. And, and as John points out in the chat, some people have reported uh, that he's got uh, a bit of a hip issue. And I don't know whether or not that's true. Um, but what I'm trying to say here is that, that there's a, for me, there's a, there's a feeling that maybe Arteta, if there is a problem, is wanting to put that in the public domain 
to kind of protect Martin Odegaard from the criticism that he's received over the last few weeks more than anything else. Players carry knocks and issues all the time. Mikel Arteta has told us that on many occasions. But I just wonder if this time he's gone, I'm going to protect you. You're my captain. You're one of my guys. You've been one of the most consistent performers since I arrived at this football club. I'm not going to throw you under the bus. In fact, I'm going to make moves and take steps to protect you in the way that he's protected David Raya recently, in the way that he protected Kai Havertz when things weren't going well. And I think this is a sign of the evolution of Arteta as a manager, because if you go way back to when he first came in, do you remember that time at Leeds where Nicola Pepe didn't perform? He was so quick to come out and kind of hammer him and and sort of, um, you know, really sort of make it obvious that he wasn't happy with the standards. But it looks like Mikel Arteta is very much now taking up that stance of, of the protective coach, which I'm I'm fine with. So Odegaard was left out. I was surprised by that, if I'm being honest, because I thought that he would want him to play through the poor form. Um, you know, Martin Odegaard, as I say, he's got plenty of credit in the bank with me personally. And I thought he would um he would get the opportunity to play through that form. And and you look at this fiction, you think Sheffield United at home. Well, this is a game that you can probably dictate. This is a game that you could probably score in. This is a game that you could really have an impact in. And if you do that, all of a sudden, the cloud above your head lifts, doesn't it? Disappears. And we're talking about Martin Odegaard in a solely positive light again. So, yeah, I thought it was a, an opportunity really for him to, to play his way back into form. But clearly, um, that was not what Mikel Arteta uh, was thinking. Gabriel uh, was replaced at centre-back by Jakub Kivior, who I think is very, very capable. Always find it difficult to judge players when they're in and out of a team and when they, you know, don't play regular football. It can be difficult, can't it, to find your rhythm, um, especially as a defender, I think, when you need to be switched on and alert at all times and any little mistake, any loose touch, any misplaced pass could potentially have catastrophic um, sort of repercussions. So good to see him come back in the side and get a run out. Uh, Havertz and Emil Smith-Rowe were both in the starting eleven. Kai Havertz had played really well, I thought, as a substitute coming on in Martin Odegaard's role. And it was interesting to see him get an opportunity on that side of the midfield this time. Um, Emil Smith-Rowe uh, picked as well from the start, which is interesting because, you know, at the start of the season, it was clear that Fabio Vieira was ahead of him in the pecking order. And now, over the last few weeks, we've seen sort of Jorginho come in at the six. Um, we've seen Rice move into the eight position. And then when we revert back, it's not been Rice at the base with Vieira on the left. It seems to be that he's turning at the moment um, to, uh, to to Emil Smith-Rowe, which is positive because we all like him. We all rate him. We all want to see him succeed. He's still got to do a bit more for me, though, to justify his selection. But um, you know, we'll come on to his performance a little bit later. But the thing that, that really jumped out at me was that he was selected ahead of Vieira in that role. And um, that wouldn't have been the case, I would argue, six weeks ago. Eddie uh, Enketia uh, played up front in place of the injured Gabriel Jesus. And, uh, well, there's lots to say about his performance, isn't there? So we'll get on to that uh, in a minute. Just a couple... Um, of your comments before we continue through the chat. Sia says, uh, congrats on reaching 30K. The road to 50K begins now. Thank you so much, mate. And thank you 
for your um, very, very kind donation to the channel. Raphael says, great to join the show live. Congratulations. The next target is 40,000 subscribers. Uh, Creambone says, without this podcast, I'd be out nicking hubcaps. So thank you, Harry, especially from all the car owners in my area. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, thank you to Sadiq as well. Um, and to Tom too. And if anybody else uh, has, has said anything, uh, I apologize if I've missed them. Uh, I can see one from Glenn. Thank you so much, mate. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, really appreciate you all, as you know. Okay, so the first 28 minutes, as I described, wasn't great from Arsenal. A um, little bit lackluster, not moving the ball quick enough, in my opinion. And, you know, eventually th there was a little bit of quality there that just allowed us to kind of breach that Sheffield United resistance. And from then on, you, you felt confident that Arsenal were going to go on and win the game. I did anyway. You know, it was always about the first goal for me. You know, if Sheffield United went down the other end and got it against the run of play, then all of a sudden, you know, you, you've got one of those situations where it's going to be a siege on their defence and you're hoping that you can find a couple of moments and turn the game on its head. But when you get the first goal in a game like this, I think it's... It's massive. Um, I think that watching that first sort of 24, 25 minutes back, it, it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of a red herring for me because as I say to you, I didn't watch that part of the game live. So I went back and watched it. But obviously, when you know what's coming, you know that we do break the deadlock on 28 minutes, you don't feel as anxious and as nervous about it, of course. I can imagine that if I was in the stadium watching it, I'd have been a little bit irritated by Arsenal's performance during that period of time that I've mentioned. Um, listening to it on the radio, I was frustrated. I kept looking at the time of the game. I kept looking at the clock and thinking, come on, lads, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Let's 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 find that breakthrough. Let's make it happen. And so, yeah, I'm I'm conscious that I'm looking at this through a lens of, well, I knew what was coming when I watched it. So why will I why would I have felt any anxiety or nervousness? But I'm sure people within the stadium did. Five attempts at goal in the first half. For me, not enough against the side like Sheffield United, with all due respect to them. You want to be creating chances, and when you can't break a team down and you can't create clear cut ones with the frequency that you'd like, you gotta take shots on, sometimes from the edge of the box. You know, you got to create those moments. You don't shoot, you don't score. I know that's a really simplistic thing to say, but sometimes you can force an issue, not just by trying to take players on, not just by trying to thread the ball through the eye of a needle, but you can force an issue by taking shots at goal. You know, you can follow up with rebounds. You can win corners. There's so much value to doing that as well. And I'm not saying take shots from halfway. And I, I certainly don't... Um, like it when I'm at Emirates Stadium and someone gets the ball in midfield and everyone goes shoot as if to say like you know come on you should be scoring from 40 yards like I'm not a big advocate of that but I do think there are opportunities where you know players probably overthink the idea of giving the ball away and so decide to keep it and actually watching it back you can see that Mikel Arteta is massive on keeping the ball I think he discourages pot shots from distance. I, I really do. I think he's one of those coaches that prefers to have control and believes that if they do have control for long enough, they will eventually find that breakthrough. And then the moment comes, Declan Rice plays a lovely ball into Eddie Nketiah, who takes a wonderful first touch and then converts past uh, Wes Fodderingham in the Sheffield United goal, who might be, by the way, the worst keeper in the league. Uh, just putting that out there. Imagine the reaction 
to that goal had Kevin De Bruyne played that pass to Erling Haaland. It's literally all we'd be hearing about. Now, I've said that Rice's progressive passing could improve, and I still think it can. Um, but he certainly showed there that he does have it in his locker, that he's got that vision. And it's really good movement, actually, from Eddie and Ketia to just buy himself that little bit of space to be able to um, to take that touch. The defender gets a little bit too tight to him in the end of the, the action, which allows him, once he's taken that touch, to, to generate the space for the shot. But, you know, really, really good stuff um, from uh, Rice and Nketiah as a combination. And uh, I was delighted to see that he was able to get off the mark. Because as I say, we've been talking loads about what we're going to do in the absence of Gabriel Jesus. And, you know, Eddie Nketiah is always going to be questioned. And, and, and a lot of the time for good reason. But you want him to be confident. You want him to be firing. You want him to be feeling confident so that he can step into that role and do the best he's capable of, essentially. And based on yesterday's performance, again, albeit against Sheffield United, you have to say that we feel a lot more confident that that can happen now. But anyway, we're going to take a really, really short pause and then we're going to continue our reaction to Arsenal 5, Sheffield United 0. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the podcast. The heavens have just opened in North London. You might notice if you're watching us that darkness has descended upon us. Um, I've got the lights on at 11 a.m. in the morning. That's the kind of miserable weather we're looking at and talking about right now uh, in London. I've got the blinds open, which means all the daylight available is coming in, yet I've got to have the lights on. That's how miserable it is. But you know what? It's not going to dampen my mood because Arsenal won 5-0 yesterday. Um, Arsenal come out in the second half, of course, and you're just thinking second goal, second goal, second goal. The quicker you get the second goal, um, the more comfortable an afternoon this would be. And even though you've already rotated and rested a few players, you can do it even more to an even larger extent. You can take off even more of your key players. You know, someone like Bukayo Saka, who is still working his way back to fitness, who we've talked a lot about the need to protect. Someone like Declan Rice, et cetera, et cetera. And on 50 minutes, just five minutes into the second half, Arsenal get that second goal. Ben White plays a big part, I think, in creating the space um, in which... Eddie Nketiah pops up in. Wes Fodderingham, who I mentioned earlier, might be the worst goalkeeper in the league. Didn't exactly cover himself in glory. Um, I don't think um, with uh, with his role there, I'm just waving at my son who's decided to look at me from the house. Um, right down the garden, he's just spotted me in the, in the man cave and he's given me a wave. There you go. He's uh, jumping up and down in his Arsenal kit. Anyway, um, yeah, you know, the, the ball drops nicely for Nketiah and he finishes uh, in the cold-blooded fashion um, that we kind of came to expect from Eddie Nketiah in the early days of his career. It was a type of instinctive finish and he showed the type of sharpness within the box that he, as I say, became renowned for earlier on in his Arsenal career. Still can't believe that VAR actually spent time looking back at that goal. Because Wes Fodderingham was clutching at straws, wasn't he? Sort of insinuating that there was some sort of foul there. What I mean, absolute nonsense uh, from him. He needs to be stronger. He needs to do better as a goalkeeper. That's what he should be looking at. I don't blame him for trying at the time. But the, the amount of time that was spent looking at it was, was a little bit OTT, in my opinion. And then, you know, just eight minutes later comes the third goal. Now, just wow. That's the only way to describe that. You know, what a way for Eddie Nketiah to wrap up his first Premier League hat-trick. That was the strike 
of a man with confidence flowing through his veins. He doesn't take that on, in my opinion, if he hasn't already scored twice. We can all agree, I think, that Eddie and Ketia in the long term is probably going to need to be upgraded on. And for his own good, I think he's probably going to need to move on so that he can be a regular starter because that's what he deserves. But I think we can also all agree that an Eddie Nketiah that is confident and an Eddie Nketiah that is performing is a much better version of Eddie Nketiah and the version of Eddie Nketiah that we're going to need in the absence of Gabriel Jesus. Obviously, I said performing. Obviously, that's the obvious thing. But a confident Eddie Nketiah, what I'm trying to say is, is more likely to perform at a high level and to a high standard. So you you almost felt happy for him yesterday, partly because he'd got the first Premier League hat-trick and what that means for us as a team, having this you know, confident Eddie Nketiah to take us on in the next few weeks and be an option. I still don't even think he's a shoe-in to start every game. I'd still, at times, depending on the opposition, consider, for example, Kai Havertz. But, you know, to have a, a, a confident Eddie gives you something more because you can see, as I say, that, you know, once he does get on the score sheet, the whole mood around him within the stadium changes. But also, I think the confidence within him changes to a level that I don't think you see in every other player. I think there are players that you look at and you think you're really confident. And even when it's not going your way, you're going to keep trying things because you believe in your own ability to go on and and get it right eventually. You believe in yourself. You've got that bit of cockiness, that bit of arrogance that all good strikers have. But with someone like Eddie Nketiah, I do feel like because of a lot of the noise around him and because of the type of character he is, he can get a little bit down in the dumps when he's not scoring goals. And I think we've seen that over the last few weeks when he's been coming on as a substitute. So, yeah, um, delighted for him in that sense. Um, also delighted for him because he seems like such a humble and good person. You know, the way he handed over the penalty to Fabio Vieira because Fabio Vieira is expecting a baby and had been the one to win it just highlights again the team spirit and the togetherness within this camp. You know, you go back to the penalty at Bournemouth where, um, you know, there was um, there was some debate around who should take that and the way that everybody kind of rallied together and said, give it to Kai Havertz. That's brilliant to see. And then you see Eddie Nketiah doing something very similar. He's already got a hat trick. Most strikers would have wanted to put the ball down and score a fourth. Because only Andre Arshavin and Thierry Henry have ever done that in a game for Arsenal. Eddie Nketiah could have joined that list of players. You know, so, yeah, an opportunity for Nketiah, but one that he was willing to pass over for the better of the team and for somebody who needed to get off the mark this season himself. Uh, obviously, Takahiro Tomiyasu scored the fourth. That was a striker's finish, wasn't it? Incredible instincts there on show from the Japanese defender, who seems to be, in my opinion, becoming more and more confident in his own ability in the opposition half. He's always been a, a great defender. No question about that. The thing I've always sort of questioned about Tomiyasu is, does he have the quality on the ball to get forward and make things happen? Um, does he have, you know, the, the confidence in himself to take those risks with some of the runs he makes, all the rest of it? I think in the last few weeks, you've really seen that. You know, he, he ventured forward for 
the goal against Manchester City that ultimately proved to be the winner. And we were all talking in the aftermath of that about Tommy Asu, the centre forward, and what an impact that had had. Then um, we go to Seville, and at times from left back, he was playing like a number 10. Some of the positions he was taking up, some of the runs he was making. And then he pops up the following week with a goal. Is that coincidence? I don't think so. I think there is a belief in Takahiro Tomiyasu right now um, that we haven't really seen before. I wonder if that's to do with his physical condition. Is he feeling great? And is that, you know, making him believe that he can make those runs and knowing that he can get back because injuries have always been a problem for him since he's come to Arsenal and he's never really looked 100% all of the time. So is there a confidence now in his body and in his ability to get up and down the pitch, which almost takes the shackles off mentally and allows him to, to venture forward and, and do those things? I don't know. But the reaction from his teammates when he scored that goal was was truly incredible. Again, a sign of the team spirit. And again, as Mikel Arteta highlighted after the game, just a, an example of how much he is loved within the team and valued and rated. And so look, this is the thing with this squad. Sometimes there will be players that don't get as much game time as they'd like and don't get as much game time as they would get at any other club. It's not a reflection of their quality. Sometimes tacti tactically, they're not the one that Arteta wants to use. Sometimes, um, you know, someone else is playing so well that it's difficult to displace them. Uh, you know, Tell me, Asu's a great player, and we've got a lot of players that are around the fringes of the team. Leandro Trossard's a great example of that, who at most other teams will play, but he doesn't because we're a really strong side at the moment. But that competition and that sort of battle for places hasn't caused divides in this camp. If anything, it's brought people closer and together. And Mikel Arteta somehow has been able to keep all of these players engaged even when they've not been regulars in the starting eleven. So that's a testament to him. But I also think it's a testament of the characters that we have at the football club. Again, you can link that back to him and Edu because when they go out to sign players, that is something that they do look into in quite a lot of depth and quite a lot of detail. But yes, for me, it's, um, it's, uh, it's really, really great to see. Um, I mentioned Vieira's penalty, definitely the right decision. VAR had to intervene to award that one. It was a nasty challenge from Norwood, wasn't it? Down the back of his Achilles. Um, and he has a baby on the way, Fabio Vieira, which I didn't know, actually. Um, and his celebration said as much, even before Eddie revealed it post-match. He put the ball under his shirt um, and sort of uh, jogged off to the corner flag, gave it the little the pacifier sign as well. Um, also, um, you know, just to kind of wrap up on the game before we go into your questions, uh, squad rotation, which I've touched on at the beginning, you know, you have to say based on that assessment of the game, it worked an absolute treat. I'm uh, going to take another short pause. Then I'm going to give you my player ratings and then we're going to focus for the rest of the program on your questions. We've got some on X to address um, that you guys were sending in last night and we're going to take some from the live chat box as well. So start filling up. Uh, the live chat box with your questions. Please do put a cue at the beginning of them. It just makes it that bit easier for me to pick them out. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in just a second with some player ratings. Right then, Harry Simu's player ratings. Let's start with David Raya in goal, who I'm going to give a 7 out of 10. He didn't have to be outstanding yesterday because of the, the quality of the opposition and because of how little of the game they had. Um, 
and because how ineffective they were in the final third. But everything he did do, he did comfortably. And I think when you consider all of the noise around David Raya at the moment, from myself included, by the way, this was exactly the type of game that he needed. A game where he wasn't under the microscope. A game where the spotlight wasn't shone on him at any real point. A game where he could come out and make some contributions, i.e. the taking of crosses, etc. Played a couple of decent passes out from the back as well. So one where you'd only notice the good things because they were good, but the general stuff that he did was just tidy and it's not a talking point. Exactly the type of game David Rye would have wanted. He gets a 7 out of 10 for me. Ben White, I'm going to give him a 7 out of 10 as well. Never really felt like Ben White got out of second gear. Just felt like he was cruising through this one uh, from the outset. Unlucky not to score as well. Had a good effort saved by Fodderingham from the edge of the box. William Saliba is going to get a 7.5 um, out of 10 for me. Rolls-Royce of a defender. Feels like um, he just toys with people, doesn't it? Like, he makes you think that he's going to give up possession. He, he, he makes you think when he's chasing a ball that you've got a chance, and then he just turns on the burners and, and gets away from you. Look, I can't give him more than a 7.5 because I don't think he was massively tested yesterday. But a 7.5 out of 10 for William Saliba is my rating. Jakub Kivior, I'm going to give him a 7. Um, I thought he did relatively well. I thought he was solid for the most part. Um, I don't have any real concerns about him defensively, if I'm being honest. A bit like Tommy Asu, if I do have concerns about him, it's ball progression. It's the stuff that maybe traditionally centre-backs aren't judged on that is obviously important, though, within the context of this team. I did feel at times that Jakub Kivio was almost desperate to try and play that line-breaking pass to almost showcase to the boss that he can do that. But in doing that, I think he took unnecessary risks on a couple of occasions. Okay, we weren't in a position where it was going to cost us, but I just felt like he could have been a little bit safer on the ball. I'm well aware, though, that the instruction from Arteta is to do those things. But as I say, I just felt like there was a little bit within him that was like, you know, I'm getting my opportunity today. I need to show you that I can do this. Um, and and for me, there are still some question marks about that with Jakub Kivio, but he'll get a 7 out of 10 for me. Zinchenko, I'm going to give him a 7.5 out of 10. He was very, very advanced in terms of his positioning yesterday. And it's why I said in the build-up to the game that although Tomiyasu was excellent in Seville, this was a game for Zinchenko. Um, you knew that we'd be able to get away with having a back three for large periods. And you knew that whoever was playing left back in Mikel Arteta's system was going to be pushed into advanced areas and was going to have to try and have an influence there. And to me, um, you know, Zinchenko is, is better equipped to do that. He's a technically brilliant, brilliant footballer. And um, and yeah, so I thought he had a good game. Seven and a half uh, out of ten. Moving into midfield, Declan Rice, uh, I'm going to give him an eight. Dominant, as always. I mean, I'm running out of superlatives uh, to keep throwing Declan Rice's direction because he's been superb since he's come in. Um, but the reason he gets an eight and, and goes just slightly above the kind of seven territory is because of that assist. To have, you know, the the thought of playing that pass to Eddie Nketiah when it didn't really look on, but then to have the quality to execute it as well, to be the one driving us forward, not just by carrying the ball, which is what he's renowned for and, and what I believe is his, what is one of his best skills, but to be able to do it by sort of 
showing a bit of technical ability and playing the ball into an area that, you know, required good control from Eddie, which we got. And then that ultimately created the space for the finish. I just, yeah, I think Rice was was excellent again, um, as excellent as he needed to be, but also played a big part in the key moment in the game for me, which was breaking down uh, Sheffield United's resistance. So eight out of 10 for me for Declan Rice. Uh, moving on to Kai Havertz. I'm going to give him a six. Uh, sorry, I'm going to give him a seven, Kai Havertz. Tidy in most of the things he did. Might have scored uh, late on in the game. Not outstanding but tidy. And I think there's a lot to be said for that in a midfield player. Um, I thought he tried to service Bukayo Saka a lot. Bukayo Saka wasn't at his best, which we'll come on to in a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think I initially gave Havertz a six and then I thought about it and thought maybe that's a bit harsh. So seven out of 10 for Kai Havertz. And I'm going to give the same rating to Emil Smith-Rowe, who wasn't as dangerous when he was on the ball as I'd have liked him to be, generally speaking. But it was his first Premier League start in a long time. He has been in and out of the side. And when we're talking about rhythm and the difficulty of sort of finding that and then maintaining that when you're not playing, um, you know, is, is something that you've got to consider um, when sort of rating his performance. And for that reason, I can't give him less than a seven. I think a seven is probably about right. Uh, Saka, I'm going to give him a six. Um, he got an assist, but not his usual self still. Um, you know, I always say that I think that there's a lot of focus put on Bukayo Saka by opposition sides to the point where we're now seeing him have to find different solutions to the ones that he'd found previously. Um, and, uh, and that's going to take a little bit of adaptation time. Also, you know, fitness has been a bit of a problem for him as well. Don't want to kill him, but six out of 10 probably feels about right. Um, with uh, with Bukayo Saka. On the other side, Martinelli, I'm going to give him a seven and a half. He was the one during that period early on in the game where we couldn't find the breakthrough that looked the most likely. He is the kind of player that you want when you're trying to force the issue because he's direct and he's um, someone that, yeah, probably at times could release the ball a little bit earlier. But in another sense, that drive that he has and that kind of tunnel vision that he has can be really, really important when you're trying to break down this type of side. So Martinelli looked the most likely to me up until we scored. And um, and so given the fact that he was a threat from the off when others weren't, he gets a seven and a half for me. Um, Eddie Nketiah, our hat-trick hero. How can I not give him a 10 out of 10? Now, you guys know that I don't often give 10s out of 10, um, but Eddie Nketiah scored a hat-trick. Um, I really, really enjoyed the way he took on the ball for the first goal. I thought the third goal was excellent and the second finish was emphatic, plus the selflessness to give up the penalty. Um, yeah, Eddie and Ketia gets a 10 out of 10 for me. In terms of the subs, just some quick ratings on them. Tommy Asu, I'll give him a seven, came on, didn't look in any danger defensively. Obviously, the game was pretty much done at that time, but then gets himself a goal. Trossard came on. I thought he had a pretty good impact when he came on. Very smart in his movement. Always causes opposition problems. Fabio Vieira, I'll give him a seven as well because uh, he won the penalty and then converted it. Reese Nelson came on. I'll give him a six and a half. Um, wasn't bad, but wasn't particularly impactful. Didn't have a lot of time, to be fair to him, uh, to make the difference. And uh, Mohamed Elneny, I'll give him a five, just even, because he came on an injury time and didn't get, um, you know, 
uh, an opportunity to really stamp his nature, uh, stamp his authority, I should say, on the game in any way, shape or form. So those are uh, my player ratings uh, from the game uh, against Sheffield United. Let me just quickly run through them quickly once again, uh, just to clarify. So Raya 7, White 7, Saliba 7.5, Kivior 7, Zinchenko 7.5, Rice 8, Smith-Rowe 7, Havertz 7, Saka 6, Martinelli 7.5, and Eddie and Ketty at 10 out of 10. Uh, those were my starting 11 player ratings. Right, thank you uh, so, so much uh, for uh, bearing with me through that. But now it is probably your favourite part of the show. It's question time. So uh, let's do it. Right, big thank you to everybody who's been sending questions in because um, we got a fair few coming through um, overnight last night. And I'm sure those of you in the chat are going to contribute uh, with some questions as well, which I'm really, uh, really looking forward to. If I could just ask you, if you haven't done so already, please do leave a like on the video. We're only a handful away from 100 likes. Um, but given how many of you are watching, there's no reason why we shouldn't have at least 150 on the board. So start liking the video and uh, subscribing to the channel if you haven't done so already. Let's start off, I think, uh, with some questions from uh, X, because sometimes I get questions on here. And then I forget to go through them because they're not in my face. So I want to make a conscious effort to do uh, these ones first this time. Uh, what have we got? Hold on. Let's have a quick look. So um, I did say in my uh, in my tweet where I asked the questions that I know people will say it's only Sheffield United and all the rest of it. And Loic on X made a great point. He said, it's the Sheffield United that Tottenham were losing till until the 96th minute. And that City were 1-1 with until the 80th, which is a great point. Um, Gabby says, quite a reactive question after yesterday's game, after today's game, but it's yesterday's game now. Assuming Gabriel Jesus is fit to start against West Ham, which I don't think he will be, but I'll, I'll allow that to pass for the um, the context of the question and, uh, and for the purpose of the question. He says, if Gabby Jesus is fit to start against West Ham, who of Eddie... Jesus and Havertz should start and end that match. So it's a difficult one uh, because I think um, I think that even if Gabriel Jesus was fit, I wouldn't want to use him in a Carabao Cup game if I could avoid it. So I'd have naturally turned to Enketia or Havertz anyway. And I think it would depend a lot on how Mikel Arteta sees the game panning out tactically. Because at times we've seen Kai Havertz give us a real outlet, be that direct option. But he also doesn't give you the buzzing around that you get from, um, you know, uh, a Jesus or at times an Enketia. Not to the same effect, but you do get it to a degree from him. So I think that actually um, Jesus probably wouldn't have played anyway, regardless of whether he's fit or not. And therefore, off the back of a hat trick and having not played all that much recently, you got to say that Eddie and Ketia probably would be first in line to start that game. And I think that's probably fair based on what we've just seen. Uh, super chat from Delisu. Thank you so, so much, mate. Really, really appreciate uh, the uh, donation. He says, Harry, was the rotation also potentially influenced by our League Cup game against West Ham, where Arteta might look to play some of those fringe players and he doesn't want them going in cold? The, the two questions are linked, which is great, which is why I brought this one in now. Possibly, you know, I think it is 
a lot to ask for players to come in cold and perform at a really high level straight away. And we have demanded that at points. And I think it's why under Mikel Arteta, we've seen some really cold performances in the Cups because he's always had quite a settled eleven. And then when he's had to make those changes or felt that it was the game to do it, it impacted on the level of our performances. So I think you make a really, really valid point there. I, I, I really do. I, I think he is looking at it one game at a time, sort of generally speaking. But I do think that, you know, maybe even subconsciously, the fact that we had this game coming up might have made a bit of a difference there. Um, let me uh, take a couple more from X before we come back over to the chat box here. Uh, remember, keep getting them in. Uh, put a queue at the beginning of your question. Just makes it a bit easier for me to uh, identify them from the chat box. 49 undefeated on X says, how do we win 5-0 but not really look that fluid? It's strange. Do we just have to accept that Arsenal are playing a slightly different style of football this season? Because that's the question I keep asking myself. Whenever I come away from a, a game and I think to myself, you know, did we perform that day? Blah, blah, blah. I keep thinking to myself, hold on a minute. We weren't that great on the eye. But is that because we have an expectation based on what we saw last season? And actually, should we be changing those expectations or altering them? Because actually, maybe behind the scenes, something's gone on to tweak the way we play tactically. I don't know. I, I think there is a bit of saving ourselves in certain games. I think there is a bit of pace in ourselves when it comes to, you know, the way we start matches and, and maybe not wanting to give things away too cheap and all the rest of it. I think there's a lot to think about here. I think there's a lot to factor in. I really, really do. Um, so for that reason, I'm going to start to say 10 games into the Premier League season that perhaps we need to adjust our expectations with regards to the type of performances that we're going to see. Because look, guys, the results are there. The results are there. The clean sheets are there. That's our fifth clean sheet in 10 Premier League games. We've got the most in the division. You know, I think, yeah, I think maybe it's time to just recalibrate what we're expecting, um, you know, uh, from week to week. Um, those are the questions I'm going to take from X. Let's go back over to the chat box uh, here. And this is one that is linked to what I've just been saying from Fuad. He says, Harry, do you see the tempo we're playing with now slower because than last season because of the susceptibility we had in conceding on the transition, which was a problem for us previously. Yeah, that builds in nicely to what I was just saying in that I think there is an element of Arsenal trying to exercise control, but in a slightly different way to what we saw last season, whereby they feel now that they can control games, i.e. not concede stupid goals, keep opponents at arm's length like they did against Man City, and still get the results that they want. I, I I really do think that there's a lot of that sort of this season that maybe wasn't there previously, and it's taken us a bit of time to kind of suss it out and work it out. You think about sort of, yeah, the Man City game being the prime example. That showed to me a maturity and an evolution in terms of how this team is developing. And I I quite like that. I think it does mean, though, at times you play... Um, and, and your, how do I put this? You're, you're sort of minimizing the risk in one way because you're not as open and you're not as susceptible to conceding those goals on the transition as, as Fuad rightly points out. But by that same token, 
you're now relying on being more efficient in both boxes because the margins between winning and losing or winning and drawing are, are smaller now because you're not going and blowing teams away. So th there's a bit of a, a balancing act that needs to happen here. But I think it's a really, really good point. And I think over time, we've started to see that this season. And I'm certainly getting to the point where I'm starting to think we are playing slightly differently. And so if I'm going there every week expecting to see the same performances that I saw last season, I'm wrong, you know, and, and I'm going to be disappointed and I'm going to feel let down. I think ultimately what we want to see is Arsenal, you know, stay in the title race for that bit longer and be able to sustain this level of results and performances across multiple competitions. Now, part of sustaining it um, across multiple competitions will mean that you need to kind of spread your energy a little bit. So, you know, if you play at 60% in a league game against Sheffield United and you still manage to win it, great, because you got the result that you wanted and you got it because you were efficient in both boxes, as Arteta always says. Then you go to West Ham and you've got a little bit more in the tank to maybe commit to a Carabao Cup game than you would have had last season. And so over the course of the campaign, we're going to figure out whether or not this slightly different approach and this more cautious approach actually gives us the durability to go longer and deeper into competitions and compete on multiple fronts for a longer period of time. That's what I'm really, really interested to see. Um, the immature reviewer says, should we sell Partey because he's injury prone and never available when we need him? Look, there was that stupid piece going around yesterday from uh, Juventus uh, media outlet, Juventus affiliated media outlet, saying that he's growing unhappy with his lack of game time. We talked about this, I think, about a week or so ago as well, when that report first emerged. For some reason, some of the aggregators online were were re-spreading that yesterday. And it was because he wasn't in the team and he wasn't available and all the rest of it. He's going to be out for a number of weeks again. I've grown increasingly frustrated with Thomas Partey's fitness. but He's a wonderful, wonderful player. And there isn't really much value in selling Thomas Partey in January in terms of monetary value because of those reasons I've stated, because of his age, because of the fact that he cannot be relied upon to stay fit over a long period of time. The only clubs that are going to bite, I would imagine, are Serie A clubs. They'll feel like the pace of the league, maybe La Liga clubs too, but the pace over there will suit him a little bit more. And therefore, he's unlikely to break down as often as he does in England. But if you're talking about clubs in the Serie A and clubs in La Liga, unless you're selling to Real Madrid or Barcelona, you're not going to get a, a good amount of money. Not an amount of money that's worth letting him go for at this stage, given that he can still play a part. I mean, if he is fit, when he is fit and when he's available, I trust him implicitly in the midfield. I think he's great. So I wouldn't sell him personally at this moment in time, but I have grown frustrated by his inability to stay fit. There's no, no question about that whatsoever. Um, I'm going to take uh, a couple more. Um, <laughs> this one says, uh, would you support Manchester United against City today um, so that Spurs and you remain the only title contenders? I'm assuming you're not an Arsenal fan. Um, I think you're a United fan, judging by that question. Um Will I support United against City? I wouldn't go as far as saying I support them. I'd never support Manchester United, but um, I'd quite like them to beat Manchester City today. Yeah, because I think that Manchester City have the minerals to to go all the way over the course of the entire season. And I'm still not convinced by Spurs. I thought they were quite fortunate, actually, on Friday night to get the lead the, the way they did. Um, 
And prior to that, I hadn't been impressed with them. So as in, in that game, I watched them at Luton a few weeks ago. I commentated on that game and I didn't think they were that great in the second half that day. So I think for me, um, I, I think for me, you know, Man City is still the side to beat. I think Liverpool are a bigger threat than Tottenham Hotspur, in my honest opinion. So, yeah, I'd like to see Manchester City slip up. Of course I would. Uh, let's take this one from Raphael, who says, Hi, Harry, on a separate matter. What was your assessment of Chelsea's performance in the match against Brentford, given that you were uh, doing the radio commentary? Thanks. I thought Chelsea in the first half were quite good in terms of the fact that they were able to create three or four good opportunities against a really stubborn, solid, well-drilled and well-set-up Brentford side. But in the second half, they just got sloppy. It all got a little bit too frantic. You felt like they were trying maybe too hard at times to kind of force the goal. Maybe a little bit of patience, a little bit of the game management we've been talking about from an Arsenal perspective would have served them better. They just lack a punch in the in the final third. They, they really do, Chelsea. Nicholas Jackson doesn't impress me. Um, he was receiving stick from a Chelsea fan on the sidelines. He responded to that. And Maurizio Pochettino even got involved in that as well. So that gives you an indication of the mood inside Stamford Bridge at the moment. But I said on my commentary when it was nil-nil that Chelsea had, in the not-too-distant past, lost to Villa and lost to Nottingham Forest in games that had played out quite similarly, where they'd had a lot of the ball, not really been able to create too much. What they did create, they weren't able to convert into goals. And there was always that threat that these teams possessed on the counter-attack. And I said in my commentary that as the game went on, I said the longer it goes on at nil-nil, and this was right at the start of the second half, the more you fear that that, that feeling and those results will start to kind of come back into the forefront of the Chelsea players' minds. And that can cause nervousness and that can cause a a sort of desperation, if you like, to go on and try and force the issue, which leaves spaces and gaps in behind. And Brentford punished them initially through Ethan Pinnock. And the second goal was just a result of Chelsea overcommitting to the point where the goalkeeper was going forward as well. Chelsea were poor. Chelsea were really, really poor. Credit to Brentford, though. Um, I'm a massive, massive fan of Thomas Frank. Since I started working for BBC Radio London, I've had plenty of opportunities to go to Brentford to cover their games, to interview Thomas Frank. And I think he's one of the most brilliant minds in the Premier League. And he's such a great character as well. I, I really, really like him. And I was happy for him yesterday, not just because I'm an Arsenal fan and I prefer Chelsea to lose and all the rest of it. But, you know, there's been people questioning him this season. And when you look at the job he's done since arriving there in, what, 2018? It, it's been unbelievable. You look at the size of that club in comparison um, to some of the others in this division and the way they've been able to compete by being really shrewd in their recruitment and in their business and having a really good coach and manager. It, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful story. So at a point where people were starting to question Thomas Frank, and believe me, as wild as that sounds, it was starting to happen in certain quarters. I'm delighted for him that he got that result because it just keeps the wolves away um, for a little bit longer and gets people off of his back. Um what else have we got uh, in the live chat box? Um, John says, is there any player out there who could replace Thomas Partey for us? Do you know what? That's an idea for another episode. I, I have to say, um, I'm going to make a note of that now. Who could replace Thomas Partey? Because I'd quite like to go away and think about this one. 
because I want someone who has a similar skill set to Thomas Partey in terms of ball progression and various other elements. So I'd quite like to look into that one. So I'm going to just pass on that for now. Um, but I promise over the course of the week, we'll bring you something around that, whether that be a separate episode or I'll include it in one of the others. I'll keep you posted. Um, some of you saying too many in the chat. Not a bad shout. Not a bad shout at all. Uh, Jacob says Zubimendi. You know what? We'll look into um, those players. Chuamani. It's always hard to get players away from Real Madrid, isn't it? When they're rated and, and Chuamani is rated by uh, by Real Madrid, as we know. Um, Zubimendi's been linked in the past. You know that Real Sociedad connection with um, with Mikel Arteta could could prove key. But from what we understand, he didn't want to join us at the time when Arsenal. We're trying to do that deal previously, but hey, um, we'll see. Guys, uh, I'm going to love you and leave you. I'm going to go and enjoy my Sunday afternoon. Going to spend a little bit of time with the kids, sit and watch um, the Super Sunday football. I'll watch a couple of games back to back, and then I'm going to round off my Sunday with Napoli against AC Milan tonight. That should be a cracker as well. Um, thank you all uh, for uh, joining me, for watching this live, for listening to it back. So, so appreciated. Thanks again for helping us get to the 30,000 milestone on YouTube. It is so, so appreciated. We'll think of something we can do to kind of celebrate that a little bit. Maybe we'll do a giveaway or something over the course of the week. So stay tuned for information on that. Like, subscribe. You know the drill by now. It really, really, really does help. Um, and I will see you all soon. Um, until next time, take care of yourselves and uh, have a great Sunday. All the best. <laughs>